He kura tangata e kore e rokohanga, he kura whenua ka rokohanga. People will pass by, but the whenua will remain forever. E nā iwi nā mana he mihi tēnei ki a koutou katoa, ko Mariah Rakuraku tēnei. Ko Justin Murray tēnei, no mai haramai ki te hōtaka nei a Te Ahikā. Welcome to Te Ahikā and your weekly dose of kaupapa Māori, brought to you by Radio New Zealand National. In this week's show, we head back to Ōpehi in the South Island, where Mariah takes in Māori rock art. This time she has given a tour inside. So Mariah, what did it feel like to be in the caves? Trippy, ancient. <laughs> A little claustrophobic. Luckily for me, though, I had the best tour guides, Alan Torbett, the South Canterbury Chairperson of the Historic Places Trust and Curator of the Māori Rock Art Trust, Amanda Simon. North of Ōpihi, where the Tanifa Caves are, is Christchurch, where kaitahu singer-songwriter Ariana Tikal is based. She released her album Tuia in 2008 and was one of the invited performers at the Māori Music Summit Pow, pow, pow. Justine got to hang out with her in the green room post-performance. Where do you draw your inspiration from? Yeah, basically I, I think it really has to come from my tipuna. Um, yeah, my father's people are from um, the Banks Peninsula area and yeah, a lot of our tipuna lived in different areas around the, the peninsula over the years. And yeah, I think it must come from, from that source. Last week, the late Matiurata, he passed away in 1997, was talking fish, giving us a Māori perspective on it. This week we hear from him again as he explains some of the more complicated terms or acronyms used by government departments throughout the 1990s, which at the end of the day is really about something quite simple. It is equally clear that we own 100% of the total fisheries resource of this country, or rather the right to determine what happens to them. After all, fish belongs, the fish belongs to those who catch it. What you have to own, remember, is what you own, is the right to determine who goes to catch it. Maturata in an archival recording from the 1990s. The forced removal of people from one location to another is something we don't hear about in a New Zealand context Yet it is very much a part of our history. I'm with Sue Eddington of Waihau Pa, south of Timaru, as she describes the resettling of her peoples from the hills of South Canterbury to the flats of Willowbridge. As they came down, the children in the party were very excited because they thought they were spying eggs all over the ground. But in actual fact, they were stones, and the land turned out to be totally worthless and not enough to sustain a family. And so one by one, the families all drifted away again or had to leave and seek employment elsewhere. That's all coming up on Tiahika this week. Lines in the song Wanganui, as sung by the Kahurangi Māori Tour Company, expresses rather eloquently the feeling of Wanganui iwi after this week's decision made by the National Geographic Board in which they agreed the letter H should be in the name Wanganui. And perhaps ends the decade-long run-in with the Wanganui District Council. Justine, a couple of New Zealand websites are running polls the day after asking whether the H should be reinstated. And the issue will soon be under public consultation. Yet for Tiasi Haunui, our Paparangi member, Ken Mia, who has always been very clear about the Wanganui iwi position and no doubt felt some vindication when the board found in favour of his iwi. 
that's uh, our name. It originates from our language. That's the name we've used for hundreds and hundreds of years as as for our roi and uh, our iwi. So we we believe that that it should be upheld and respected in the way that it has been historically uh, within ourselves. Uh, We've been fighting for the correct spelling of our name for a few decades now. Just to make it clear, even though the H is going to be, or is in the name, it's still pronounced Whanganui, it's not Whanganui. No, that's, that's quite correct. It's, it's what we call, I suppose, uh, or the linguistics might call the glottal stop, eh? Uh, that um, uh, we don't say uh, Wanganui or Whanganui, uh, uh, it's uh, uh, Wanganui. So, you know, it's it's um, some people call it a silent uh, H. I don't uh, believe that it is silent. Uh, yeah. uh, those that... Uh, when we speak uh, our reo and that, mm. um, everybody knows that uh, where we're from, and uh, that's a particular meter of our reo, uh, of our language uh, that is unique uh, to us. The bottom line is really at the end of the day, is is that uh, to give it meaning, and it has meaning with the H in it. Without the H in it, uh, it doesn't it doesn't come from anywhere. It has no meaning. Uh, certainly in the Māori language and certainly uh, in the English language. So why would anyone want to have a name of oneself, of a, of a city, when it's got no meaning? When, mm. in fact, uh, as the name derives from, from us as, as the local iwi, it has meaning and historical meaning that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. Ken Mea no Wanganui. And at our website, radioNZ.co.nz forward slash Te Ahika, there are web links and additional information about that particular kōrero. And you can log in and listen to past broadcasts and even join our newsletter. I'm Mariah Rakuraku. And I'm Justine Murray, and this is Te Ahika. With the discovery of gold in the 1820s throughout parts of the United States, the settler population increased sixfold as they flooded across plains and set up townships where ones hadn't existed before. Determined to find those little nuggets that would make them rich. Which was pretty much the same way the Otago and the west coast of Aotearoa exploded in the 1860s, settlements cropping up all over the place. That's the effect on the land. What about the people of those lands who often met in head-on conflict with the settlers? Pretty much every cowboy and Indian film from the 1950s and even through to the 1980s, Mariah, shows Indians and settlers in conflict. That's right, Justine. And the conflict depicted in those films are of the kind that shows Indians clinging to traditional ways that have no place in a modern world and white men leading them to modernisation a.k.a. civilization, which as history shows us wasn't the case. So back to the gold rush and the effects that had on native peoples. I'm guessing it was just like here, Mariah, with two different peoples meeting, there were heaps of cultural misunderstandings. There were. And one way to curb those misunderstandings is to introduce laws with the intent of deterring conflict. Well, that's the theory. Often the laws created the conflict. But what we need to be mindful of is that these laws usually had something else driving them. Which was the case in America with the Indian removal policies of the late 1830s Mariah that saw the removal of native Indians from their traditional homelands to lands of other nations to accommodate the increased settler populations. So Justine, it's a bit like placing people who are brought up in the bush, like Tuhoi, by the sea or placing someone from Tauranga Moana so they're completely surrounded by the sea in the bush. 
Exactly, Mariah. That's that sense of displacement and disconnection from the whenua, you whakapapatu, would be, well, distressing. Which is how the Cherokee Nation felt when they were forced to give up its lands east of the Mississippi River to accommodate the gold speculators and migrate to what is present-day Oklahoma in the winter of 1838 and 1839. This journey is known as the Trail of Tears. And its effects were devastating. Of the 15,000 Cherokee who walked thousands of kilometres, 4,000 died of hunger, exhaustion and illness. And while the removal of Sue Eddington's people in the 1900s from the hills of South Canterbury, that's back here in Aotearoa, to its flatlands wasn't as devastating as the Trail of Tears, it is definitely something she can relate to as the mukopuna of people forced to relocate to an area very different to the one they knew. In September last year, Mariah and Sue travelled in a car on their way to Waihau Marae, south of Timaru, where she described her people's journey. From the Marae, the families either chose to send their children to the primary school here in Willowbridge, although the majority of them went to the school in Morven. I think my tower was one that elected to send her children here. And I, uh, from having done interviews, the stories I hear from the school in Morven and the, how the children were treated by the teacher, I think that maybe she had a bit of insight into that and decided, no, mine are going to go to Willowbridge. Now, you were telling me earlier about how the people came to settle down here. Well, the story I was told was came from my tower, and she tells it. The story she tells involves her her mum, her mother, who was only a child at the time. But they were living up in the valley in Hakataramea. They would have been up there for, um, you know, they, they moved around seasonally according to the kai and, and resources. And there was a story about some sheep attacked one of the local farmers, a dog, I mean, attacked the local farmer's sheep. And my toa said that the red coats came along. And from what I can gather, it was some sort of army-type so establishment. Some, yeah. Yeah, they were on horseback and they were marched, the entire settlement were marched back down this way. And some chose to settle on the banks of the Waitaki River. Um, That was Temaharua chose to go that way. And the rest got brought down to the area that we're about to go and see now and they were given um, well my my Tawa's mum received 16 acres so I'm assuming that all of the families um, surely would have got the same amount but as they came down the children in the party were very excited because they thought they were spying eggs all over the ground but in actual fact they were stones and the land turned out to be totally worthless and not enough to sustain a family and so one by one the families all drifted away again or had to leave and seek employment elsewhere. And what happened to the land that they had left? Oh the, the farmer farm just took over it. Right. They wanted them off because they wanted the land. I don't believe it was anything to do with dogs and sheep and whatever but that was what was used at the time to call in the, the men in uniform that Marched them all away. Here you are. You go and look down here now. So this terrain is um, is quite flat. So during the winter, I'm assuming a lot of flooding. Um, 
it would be freezing because it's yes. the sea's just over there, isn't it? Yep. So the sea breeze would just go. Whew, yep. Fro- freezing, freezing, freezing. Oh, yeah. Yes, I just remember um, being. You know, you'd have so many jerseys on and hats and scarves and. But the beach was only a couple of paddocks away from my toa's home, but it's so wild and we were never ever allowed to go down. No, to no. So often you'd see the waves crashing over the, and then you know coming into the first paddock, we were you were scared of it. We were as children we were scared. We'd go down there with the adults, but even still you were scared. It was just so so wild and windy, and now I think it's fabulous. But as a <laughs> child, it was. So does that mean stuff. that the diet then was um, was stuff around the sea? Oh yes, yeah. yeah. So like, and a lot of white bait. We just we're just going to cross the um, the Waiha River. There was a lot of white baiting done, and down at the mouth of the river is what is what's called the box, and it's a big wooden structure that's been built um, to try and keep the the mouth of it open. But often it's shut because it's just so rough that the stones will get churned up. <coughs> Chances are as we cross this bridge we'll see white baiters lining the... Oh no, I don't, the tides won't be right, I don't think. Oh, there's a car there. They're coming over the bridge. This is the funniest bridge in the country. It's got no sides. Oh my god! <laughs> Isn't that quaint? Oh, where? How many people have driven over there? Yeah. yeah. Out of townies. Oh, look at this! No sides on this bridge. It's just like a footbridge. Isn't that weird? It's a footbridge for the cars. I don't see any white baiters, so it can't be the right tide. So the sea, you'll be able to, if you look straight ahead, you'll you see the stone. Yeah. Gosh, and, and the and the sea used to come up right, come right up over. You see it crashing. Wow. The sea waves crashing over there. And then if if we went round there and down there, we'd come to the the mouth of the river, and it's usually just packed with white baiters. But we're going that way. And this is down Burns Road, and there seems to be a really, really flash house just over here. Somebody's homestead. That that house in oh there when goodness. I was a child was really, really flash, and I thought they were very rich. But it doesn't. It looks deserted. Mm, and that's what you notice around here. Lots and lots of deserted homes. Mm, but they're mm. these fabulous old, old constructed fuddy, you know. Yeah. Where there was a sitting room in the front. And now we're being invaded by cows. And what used to be nice brown barley and wheat is now horrible green grass that's getting shit on by 101 cows. And nobody cares less. Sue Eddington, and she will be back with us next week, sharing more of her hapu history as she leads Mariah on a tour of Waihau Pa. And Justine, that pa, like rural-based halls, was a hive of activity during the pre- and post-Second World War. Many a courtship went down there. That's how my nan and Kuro met. Sounds interesting, Mariah. Intriguing, Justine. It's the softness and what has become apparent, the durability of the interiors of limestone caves that has provided an ideal canvas for the early people who travelled around the Waiponamu. Last week we had the big build-up, Mariah. Some history on rock art in this week. And this week, Justine, we have touched down in the cave. I'm with Amanda Simon, curator of the Naitahu Māori Rock Art Trust, and Alan Talbot, he's the chairman of the board of the South Canterbury Historic Places Trust. We're on um, Mr Gould's property 
It's a small farm. It has a considerable amount of, of limestone rock area on it. There's not a great deal of grazing here, so in economic terms it's, it's, it would be fairly difficult to farm. This rock art site is one of many that are in this area, and you can see that that um, it's very sheltered inside. Yes. That at one time Mr Gould used this area to shelter his sheep in bad weather. Sure. Uh, and this is the reason, the primary reason for it being fenced is that it's, it, it, it excludes livestock and, of course, uh, it also excludes unauthorised people from interfering with the rock art, which is very precious. And so this fence was put up in the early 1980s. It's very solidly constructed and it's been there ever since, and the site has been kept locked um, right throughout that time. Now, there are other rock art sites on this property, but none of them are fenced. Okay. But none of them are quite so easily accessible as this one. Now, you grew up around this area. Yes. And you were saying earlier that, you know, it just was there. You didn't really take much notice of it. No, we just accepted it as part of the, mm, you know, part of the, the local landscape. scenery. Yes, mm. yes, yes. So I guess at some stage this would have provided shelter for people as they were travelling. I'm sure that, that, mm. that it would have done. Um, and, and one can imagine that they would use they would travel up the river. The settlement, the Maori settlements, would be along the coast. They'd travel up the river to come inland to go hunting in the in the country further back, uh, and this little valley comes up from the river, so it would be a natural sort of place to come in here for shelter on mm, the way. Mm. And it would have been known by people too. Oh yes, that there was a shelter place here. That's right. Mm. Yes. Yes. Wow, how amazing people stood here. Yes. And then um, uh, you'll notice that the, the rock art itself is in the, in the roof of the shelter and it's quite high up. So that must have either been very tall people who, who, who did the rock art or else, uh, or else they, they stood on something that is not there now sure. to reach it. And the... the the, the rock art that's in here extends almost the full length of that shelter and <clears throat> it appears to be based on mythical monsters that were supposed to live in the river and up these valleys called Tanifwa. And this particular piece of rock art depicts two Tanifwa uh, with, with twisted tails. So when when you get inside, you'll get a better view a view of that. This is an interesting little uh, uh, rock art site because it contains writing that's done in English, and obviously it's been done after the time of European uh, settlement here. There is a bit of drawing here as well. Um, but if you if you examine it closely, it's not anything like as well executed as what the drawings are in the in the Tanifwa site itself, which indicates that somebody has attempted to imitate what what there is in there. 
Either that or not everybody was good drawers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we can we can we can reasonably date this, but we can't date the other. So what kind of dating are we looking at this? Ah, well, when when did Europeans arrive in in this country? In the early 1800s. 1800s yeah. So that would be about the earliest, I think. Okay. How can you date limestone? How can you date it? It's carbon dating. Yeah. But I don't know whether it's practicable for this sort of thing. Mm. I don't know. The big freeze is four metres long and one metre wide, and it, it's, it's composed of three interlinking tanifa figures. So and that's what we're looking at? Yeah, that, this is a, that's the head of the tanifa, the feet, and then going down to the tail. And the tail so this is the tail here? Yeah, that's the tail there, and yeah. it's uh, interlinked with the tail of the second tanifa figure. Which is the figure. tail here? That's right, yep. yeah. which is the so tail here. So the body's going up, and then there's another tanifa figure out to the side... If I don't fall off a cliff doing this, there you go, just here. And this is more of a kind of an um, an abstract figure. But in amongst these tanifa, there's also human figures. You see this? So which the human figures? See this here? This is the um, oh, yep. arms, arms, legs. The so they're, they're quite stylized in their, in their form. And that's, that's very... People may look like that, Amanda. <laughs> that may, maybe they do. No. Skinny folk. <laughs> Skinny folk with big, <laughs> big stomachs. Childbearing hips. Yes, yeah. So that's, that's, um, yeah, that's the design. And you saw down the valley um, the names, Fano names down there. And, yeah, um, it looks like a whakapapa down there. Yeah, I think it's, a, I mean, that's obviously a, quite a recent addition. And it's at a time when um, the missionaries are, are coming into the country and teaching teaching people how to read and write. And you notice the distinctive kind of copper plate script that they used, and that's a very old style. So it's, it's a way of, I think, um, those people reinforcing their connection to this site. You know, the original intention of the rock art could have been to, to mark a, you know, a territory or to stake a claim or to give a sense of ownership. And those names down there, same motivation, you know, it's just a more modern way of doing things. And um, you've got to remember at that time a lot of the land was being taken up by um, Europeans. So the local people, local Māori were being... Um, pushed, pushed off their land, basically. So it's a way of expressing that that connection still maintained, even though they're, you know, they're not not on the land or can't get onto the land anymore. So that's interesting. Now, the um, if you're looking at the distance from the bottom of the rock, so like where you'd have to stand oh, to actually do it, yeah. has that is it likely that that would have fallen away? I'm not sure. By the it, time that that had been put up there, or um, that they were pretty tall people. Um, well, there's, that there's, wasn't the case. I'll tell you what. There's rock art found all over the place where it's you know three, four, five meters up a cliff face, and you think, how on earth was that done? You know, was there some kind of scaffolding? Was were they coming down on ropes? But the vegetation may have been different around the sites, and um, mm. you know, p- people could easily have constructed. Um, whatever they needed to get to those places, and um, could even have constructed, you know, long, long brushes to, to reach these things. But I mean, it's only um, the shelter would only be it's less than two meters high, so um, people could easily have reached to, to draw that from the existing floor line. Kia ora, Amanda Simon and Alan Torbett, to Parkia, passionate about the rock art prevalent in South Canterbury, and whom Naitahu Iwi, a 
Now, what about those with Māori and Pākehā heritage? How do they negotiate and acknowledge their dual whakapapa? Singer-songwriter Ariana Tikau does it through her waiata, as Justine learned when she interviewed her post-performance at the Māori Music Summit, Pao Pao Pao, in October last year. We're at Pao Pao Pao. This is Justine Murray Fotiahika, and um, Ariana's just performed. Can I just say, um, what's that word? Captivating is the word that I kind of sum it up. Where do you draw your inspiration from? Yeah, basically, I think it really has to come from my tipuna. Um, yeah, my father's people are from um, the Banks Peninsula area, and yeah, a lot of our tipuna lived in different areas around the, the peninsula over the years. And yeah, I think it must come from from that source. And also in, in my latest album that I've brought out, Tuia, um, I wanted to acknowledge my uh, Taha Pākehā as well, my mum's side. Um, so she's got uh, English and Italian um, ancestry. So I wanted to kind of celebrate all of what makes mm. me who I am. And let's talk about Tuia. How long, from conception to release, how long was that process and how was it cathartic for you? Um, I had the idea... Probably back in 2003 um, when I was living down in, in, in Ōtipoti in Dunedin and I kind of uh, wrote down a, an idea for a show that I might tour, um, which was a multimedia show. Um, nice. And, yeah, and then just after probably a couple of years later, um, after actually it, it didn't take off um, because of time and whānau commitments and all that sort of stuff, but then um, I received some funding from Te Waka Toi, uh, which is Creative New Zealand, uh, to do an album of that name of Tuia. Um, and then yeah, that was released um, yeah, just this year, uh, in March of this year. Wow. And yeah, it's a, it was produced by Leighton, who's a producer based in Dunedin. Um, so we collaborated together, and Richard Nunn's also played Taonga Poro wow. for us. So. In terms of... Um, te reo and writing and composing who were instrumental in, in helping you in that aspect? Um, definitely people like uh, Ngahiwi Apanui who you know, is one of the main organisers for tonight yeah. uh, for Pau 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 and um, yeah, when I was down at university at, at Otago um, back in the early 90s um, I discovered an album that he'd released uh, with his band Aotearoa and that was the first sort of time that I um, had heard you know, contemporary Māori waiata with Aunga Poro and that was kind of that you know, was really inspiring for me and also at the same time I discovered uh, Mahi Narangi Toka's uh, music and um, yeah, I mentioned that tonight I wanted yeah, to dedicate my performance to her because um, she would have been here um, tonight if she didn't pass away um, tragically mm. earlier this year. So, just wanted to acknowledge, you know, that she and um, people like her have yes. blazed the way really yes. for for us now. So, definitely. Yeah. And so, obviously, you've you've got so many inspirations in terms of your music. Yeah. And is it a family thing? Let's talk about your whānau. Um Yeah. Apparently, I've just discovered just not long ago um, my, a photo of my grandfather and he was holding a banjo and so yeah and I've heard recently that he played banjo and ukulele and I didn't know that about him because I never met him because he um, died before I was born um, so that's on my dad's side so yeah it was cool to see that um, and yeah also just yeah within certain people within the nice. whānau, you know, always into their kapahaka and things like that. So. Now, we had your performance tonight at Pao 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 and, I mean, some of the images that came to my mind um, were, 
you know, just the whole imaging and, and video in the background. It was kind of like a enigma meets deep forest meets, you know, Māori kind of synthesizers. How would you, I mean, how would you describe your music? Because it's, and it's, when you start off with a, it's almost like a karanga, but it's, it's not. Mm. But how would you describe your music? Um, well, I guess I grew up in the 70s and 80s, really, so you know, maybe that's part of um, who I am as well, you know, coming through <laughs> the music from that time. Um, yeah, and some of the reviewers have, have mentioned um, some bands from the UK that kind of used a lot of synth-type stuff, and, and I think possibly the producer Leighton was, um, he also grew up at that same time, so yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. that filters through somehow. But um, it's yeah, it's hard to describe. But I think, um, and also yeah, those those images were created by Louise Portiki Bryant, um, who's a choreographer, um, who's Ngaitahu as well, and she's based in Auckland. Um, and I was lucky enough to get some funding from the Ngaitahu Fund. Um, actually, supported us for that. So awesome. yeah, just having her imagery of of our landscape um, while we're performing, I think, makes it for the people as well. Awesome stuff. Um, Ariana, where do you think Māori music has come since poi year? <laughs> um, oh, it's come like probably in, in big circles, really, and um, it's forever changing. And you know, whoever is in the mix, you know, creating their own way to it and adding to it. So yeah, it's, it's quite, quite an exciting phase, I think, right now with um, just about every genre you know we have out there. Um, and people creating some awesome stuff so it's, it's a real honour to be a part of tonight um, mm. at Pau 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 and I just want to congratulate really the, the organisers of tonight and Toy Māori and all the other people that put it together it's, it's real, it's amazing to be part of it Justin Murray talking music with Ariana Tikal at our website radioNZ.co.nz forward slash tiahika there's a load of information there from the Green Room to the Saturday morning markets at the Narawahia Township on the outskirts of Hamilton, Fijian Indian Surya Parak owns three stores, which may not sound like much for today's budding New Zealand entrepreneurs, but when there are only 10 shops in the main town, it is. My name's Surya Parak, and I'm from Fiji. And here I live here in New Zealand from last seven years, and I had a shop also almost seven years here. So can you take us on a bit of a tour? Of the shop? Yes. And so what, yeah. have we, what have we got in this section? Like this here, this department here, we have all the gift item ribbons here. And and in front a little bit here, like we have all these, uh, what do you call the uh, needles and all sort of things here. Cool. Sewing, sewing, sewing needles. Sewing needles and the frame here. Also we have the other, the other department. And... This side here is all kitchen, kitchenware, and uh, what we have all for the dog beds and all those sort of things here, and the gift wraps and uh, all the. All now, the how many parts. shops have you got in Narawa here? We got three shops here. Three shops. Yeah. Why three shops? Well, I thought it's a nice place to do a business here. Yep. So, uh, so I thought it's a good to stay here. So this is shop number one. This is number one. Yeah. Cool. And I have another shop just the next uh, side by side. Side by side. And yeah. so are you able to take me into the next shop or do you have to stay in the shop? Oh, I have no idea. If I wish, if I get another one, I'll buy. <laughs> <laughs> so can we go for a tour in your other shop? Yes. We okay. Can, yeah. So who the gentleman outside entertains the people? Yeah, like uh, 
We just close this one here. I have to close this one here, and we, we go to the my wife's shop. Oh, you have to lock the door? Yeah, lock the door here. That's a good thing. Okay, now let's go into your second shop yeah. along the Ngarawa here. This, this shop here, we sell the blankets and all sort of things here. All beanies and blankets and all uh, winter items here. Yep. And uh, also cosmetic here. This all the cosmetic Nizlin souvenirs also we have over here too and uh, most of the things are like a more toys here nice. in this shop and uh, also this side here as well like a school bags and everything in this shop here and uh, also uh, the gift items hardware Everything in this one here. All the costume here, like for the Spider-Mans and all sort of things in there. Cool. And can you is this your lovely wife? Yes. Can you introduce us? Yeah. Hello, I'm Justine from Radio New Zealand. Hey. How are you? I'm Nalini. Hey, good. How are you today? Uh, good, ma'am. And you? I'm fine. Oh, that's right. And so, how's business been this morning? Oh, that's good. Oh, good. Uh, today's in. Uh, Coronation show, it's good. Oh, okay. Oh, awesome. <laughs> yep, yep. Some, some electronics things and all those things in here. Yeah. Very special price. Yeah. Do you like Narawa here? Yeah, we are here from uh, seven to eight years. And it's a nice place. And why did you choose this particular place to come and live? Did you have family here? Or? Yeah, my family here. And after coup, the, all my, uh, I'm from Fiji. I lose my all everything's in there, <laughs> in Fiji. And I have an interview in the New Zealand uh, uh, TV. Oh, yes. Yeah, when they come uh, to Fiji, they take our interview and the films and everything's from my shop and everything. I got a duty-free shop there. Oh, wow. And they all looted in, uh, yeah. In 2000, and then we came here for a better life as well. Yeah, better life is there. And can I ask if you have children? Yeah, I have one daughter. Oh, that's nice. And she's also here now. Oh, lovely, lovely. <laughs> yeah. Great people in that one. Yeah, it's very nice people, very friendly, and very helpful also. Oh, lovely. <laughs> well, thank you very much for thank your time. You. So, should we go to your? Yeah, the third one. Nice. Oh, so you go that yeah. shop, then that shop, and then yeah. you walk down to the shop. Actually, uh, my daughter is sick. That's why we're looking after three shops. Oh, okay. Sometimes we have to close this one and go run there. <laughs> Customer wants something. And how often do you walk up and down the street? Oh my God, every minute. <laughs> you might see me. You must get fit. Yes, uh, I I love walking. You know, like. Uh, it's a good exercise. It's a very good exercise in this. So, and which shop are we coming up to now? Yeah, the next to the radio tonight. He's got three of them. I know. I've just yes, three shops. Morning, <laughs> Serena. That's next to the radio. All oh, right. So over here. Yes. I just. So this is called. Kiwi Bargain. This this shop's name is a Kiwi Bargain. Kiwi Bargain. Yeah. 
Wow. And so tell me about this this particular shop. This shop here in the Kiwi Bargain, you can find all the things like a nice jewellery here, a green stone, power soil, and also the other different cheap jewelries as well. And uh, second thing, we have all the gift items over here, this side here, Ooh. and uh, like flowers and everything as well here. So a lot of things to see in this shop as well, in the Kiwi Bargain. And yeah. so out of all the three shops, which one would probably be the most popular? Oh. That's uh, my wife's shop there, it, that's more popular one, and this one here, because they love uh, jewelries and sunglasses to buy, so they always come here as well, you know. And in my shop there, all the stationeries and everything, when it's a school holidays and those sort of time, get busy there as well. And so would most of your customers, in, in, your, in your point of view, be, be Māori? Yeah, most of the Maori. Yeah. And, and how have you? Have you obviously seven years? Have yeah. you created a a special kind of, you know, rapport with your customers? Oh, they are very very nice to us, and they're always very helpful. And they, whenever they want any help, they always stand by, always with us. You know, so we like the Maori people here very very much. And and how long do you think you'll be you'll be in Arawa here for? Oh, I just bought that property just last month, so. I, I know I will have listed for 25 years, so you know I may have to stay more than 25 years here. <laughs> well, that pretty much cements your place in Aroha here. Yeah. The Muri Whenua claims of 1986, 1987 and 1988 were led by Nāti Kuri Matu Rata, who retired a parliamentary career to assist Northern Iwi in the Waitangi Tribunal process, which then led to the fishing claims brought by other iwi. Here, Rata is talking to members of the Māori section of the Combined Trade Unions about ITQs, Individual Transferable Quotas. These quotas relate to the fishing quotas and recommendations made by the Māori section of the Crown's Committee Inquiry into Fishing. When we first applied to the Waitangi Tribunal, I applied on the basis of the known historical usage of up to 48 miles from the foreshores of our own areas uh, to cover the actual uh, toka, fisheries tokas of our own people and which went to 48. Then I later amended it to apply to the 200 or the economic zone. Now, as you know, the Waitangi Tribunal not only upheld our claim in respect to the fisheries inside the foreshores, but also indicated that as a consequence of the failure of the Crown to protect those inshore fisheries, thus allowing them to deplete to such an extent, it was also clear that we had a development right which takes us out to the 200-mile limit. Now, what we're arguing is simply this. It is equally clear that we own 100% of the total fisheries resource of this country, or rather the right to determine what happens to them. After all, fish belongs, the fish belongs to those who catch it. What you have to own, remember, is what you own, is the right to determine who goes to catch it. Though you might 
you might have a billion dollars worth of fish. The plain fact is it belongs to the person who catches it. What you get back for it is simply the license that you get uh, for both the license to go and fish commercially and the resource rental that you charge uh, and also the actual um, uh, ITQ fees that are paid or any other such fee. The, for the year ending the 31st of March 1987, the total amount from, earned from, by the government in terms of its fees, allowances, licenses, and so on, amounted to $36 million. And of that $30 million was spent in paying the costs and charges to the Department of Fishery, or that portion of the Department of Agriculture and Fisheries, so that there is a surplus in that account of $6 million. Of that amount, $20 million was made up of resource rentals, which is paid for by the fishermen, of a percentage or calculations upon, their, of, upon the quotas that they have. Right, so $36 million, uh, a gross income of a value of fisheries worth almost a billion dollars, you get hardly something to write home about, but nonetheless, uh, it is a, 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 an amount uh, that is currently earned. It is Treasury's view, and I tend to agree with them, that there must be a realistic appraisal of the amount that could quite conceivably be paid to whoever owns the right to determine, in this case, us. And so that the, but the law says that there can, there can be no increases to the resource rentals of that shall not exceed any one year uh, by 20%. And the fisherman is currently challenging the right of the government to increase them at all. Now, we have a secondary front, if you like, where the fishing industry is concerned that, first of all, any, any uh, implication of the, the if you like, the, the issues currently being negotiated by the Maori representatives and the Crown could, of course, end up on their plate and could result in them losing what they gained lawfully and could result in increases to which they have no, uh, uh, no ability to stop. And in some respects, that is understandable. We came down recommending that at least as an initial step, we should at least look realistically at offering to secure 50% of the total fisheries from the foreshores of New Zealand to the 200 economic zone. Now, um, we then took that view or those recommendations to a national hui of 146 tribal representatives in Wellington and sought their endorsement to enable us to negotiate or continue the negotiations. That principle was accepted by the hui, though there was some concern that we shouldn't give away what we haven't had for 148 years, quite right, I suppose. Nonetheless, we believe that 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 uh, that was a realistic goal to aim for and one that was well within the capacity of the Crown to honour. Secondly, that we wanted, if you like, the, the, the full, the half the control, if you like, of fisheries in New Zealand in the future. Thus we recommended that the Department of Fisheries be abolished and in its place a fisheries commission to be made up of one half a membership of the Crown one half the membership Maori rep, uh, on the uh, election by Maori people, and that for the first two or three years, no more, the Minister of Fisheries were to be chairman of the commission. 
The purpose of the Commission is to do all those things that are determined by statute that is currently done by the Fisheries Department to give effect to Māori fisheries and also to manage, control and make provisions in respect to conservation. All of the incomes that would be due the Māori people will be, will be, uh, will be um, distributed to what I thought might be possible, the established new statutory Māori regional authorities. Now, those questions have yet to be confirmed by the government. They are still issues we need to think about as people. And, that <clears throat> and it was felt that the control, ownership and management of fisheries could be accommodated <coughs> and that although the idea of actually throwing the ITQ out, lock, stock and barrel is quite attractive. Legally it's not possible unless you want to entertain the idea of a major litigation for the, for the next umpteen years, which is of course the responsibility of the government rather than ours. And although the Crown members were of the mind that there should be a, the ITQ system should be reversed. And the way to reverse this is to up the resource rental and so that you get it to such an extent that it devalues, if you like, the value of the ITQs and thus you can get the ITQ back for virtually nothing. It sounds simple, but I hold little hope, if any, of any success being achieved that way. In other words, we were being used, if you like, as a mechanism for the remedies that the Crown would have needed to have taken anywhere on these issues, and we fortuitously came along with, a, with an application on Maori fisheries which was to be added so as to provide the smokescreen and the political smokescreen at that to up the resource rentals, reverse the ITQs, and solve the problem and get an economic return for fisheries. Former politician and Nazi Kuri Matsurata talking about what was one of his passions, fishing. And fittingly, our Fakatoki this week is about the role of kaitiakitanga towards the Fenua, as Mauriya Toko of Ngati Ranginui explains. He kura tangata, he kore, he rokohanga, he kura Fenua karokohanga. Kiahu nei kamati mati mai te tangata, ingari kanohutoni te Fenua. So in layman terms. Um, People will pass by, but the presence and the permanence of the land will remain forever. Kia ora, Mauria nā toko. It's the Hui Ahurea Tūhoi next weekend in Ruatuki, and no doubt, Mariah, it will be full of waiata about the raids of 2007. That's right, Justine, and if you want to hear about the mamai from the perspective of the Ruatuki community and even the whole iwi who was demonised that day, it's a place to be. Also, the finalist in the Premier Farming Award from Māori was named this week. Congratulations to Morikau Station on the Wanganui River, Hereto Station in Wairua and Pakarai Whangara B5 north of Gisborne. Koe tau mai ki te mitunga a te ahikā, hoki mai anō a te rawiki i te iwi. That's right, whānau. Join us next week. He mihi ki nā kai kōrero me nā kai rā wiki wiki mihini. Mai te whānau a te ahikā ki a tātou katoa. Mauri ora.